0: Cooperative preaching process here. Okay, okay. There are, so one of the things that we learned when I was at, at Princeton Seminary uh, is, uh, and you know, we had chapel every day of the week, and uh, there was, I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, pastors and seminarians can be very competitive, and there are certain people who thought they were better preachers than other people. What I discovered is, is that The good preacher is the one who's fortunate to stand before a good congregation. It is actually the good congregation that makes the good preaching. And so you have a role today. Uh, You are not passive uh, today uh, in what we're doing here in this preaching moment. I want to remind you that the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, is the theological statement that governs our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It also governs a number of other Presbyterian and Reformed churches. The Westminster Confession of Faith was the result of five years of work by more than 120 pastors and theologians in the Church of England. At that time, the Church of England was in the middle of terrible turmoil and conflict, and Parliament had asked for a conference of these leading pastors, they were called the divines, to hammer out a statement that the whole nation could agree on. And the result was the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was published in 1642. It is called Westminster because that was the London neighborhood where the conference met. Later the Westminster Confession of Faith was supplemented by the Westminster larger catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you who are uh, died in the wool Presbyterians during your confirmation class would have learned the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Altogether those three documents are known as the Westminster Standards. One of the persistent questions that Christians wrestle with is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Gospel and the Law. Since we're saved, by faith in Jesus Christ and not by keeping the law. What's the purpose of the law for Christians? What part of the law still applies to us as Christians today? If Jesus and the cross were eternally part of God's plan, why did God give the law in the first place? Why not just start with Jesus? Chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession tries to answer some of those questions. It divides the law into three parts. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law includes the Ten Commandments. The moral law never changes. Lying, killing, adultery, stealing, dishonoring your parents, coveting, These are all forbidden in the Ten Commandments and they are still forbidden today. The civil law, however, was the legal system of the Kingdom of Israel. Remember that Israel was a nation, just like Canada or Sweden, it had its own law. And the Westminster Divines say that the civil law is then superseded by the national law of each state. And finally, the ceremonial law the law governing the tabernacle and the sacrifices, as well as the laws about uh, kosher food and this thing they call cleanliness, all of that, according to the Westminster divines, is no longer in force. The entire sacrificial system is replaced by the cross of Christ. Laws about cleanliness, about kosher eating which have to do with uh, the separation between ordinary or profane things and holy things, they too are overthrown because when Jesus died, the veil in the temple which separated the holy of the holies from the rest of the world, the veil is torn into two. For us as Christians, God no longer inhabits some small space deep inside of the temple. God and his kingdom have invaded the world. And so the physical separation between the holy and the profane does not exist for us as Christians. One of the ways, by the way, that uh, in uh, old uh, church architecture the separation of the holy and the profane would be marked would be uh, a wall here that would separate the chancel where the clergy would be from, you know, you dirty lay people. We'd be pure up here. You. So we don't have that. There is is no separation between those two things. But that doesn't mean that the law has, the ceremonial law has no purpose. And that doesn't mean that we Christians should not study and understand the ceremonial law. We are told uh, in 2 Timothy that all of Scripture is useful for us and that includes Numbers chapter 19 which we read today a section of scripture that's all about ceremonial law that's all about ritual uncleanness Uh, Numbers chapter 19 is useful for us as Christians but how? well for one thing if we don't understand the ceremonial law then we cannot understand the New Testament because the New Testament says things like Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world which is a direct reference to the ceremonial sacrificial system. To understand the cross of Christ we must first understand the law of Moses. Here's what the Westminster Confession says about the ceremonial law. This is chapter 19 paragraph 3. God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. All ceremonial laws are now abrogated, Under the New Testament so what do we hear in that passage number one all ceremonial laws are abrogated they no longer apply they no longer are enforced we no longer keep kosher we do not have temporal temple sacrifices we no longer need the ashes of a red cow all of that is done number two God gave these ordinances to Israel to prefigure Christ. These ceremonies foreshadow Jesus. They foreshadow his graces, his actions, his sufferings, and his benefits. More than a thousand years before Jesus came, God gave his people a picture of Jesus so that we would recognize him and that we'd be ready for him when he did come. And number three, God gave these ceremonials uh, ceremonies to Egypt, uh, to Israel, uh, which the Westminster Confession calls as a church under age, which means that the saints in the Old Testament were, in a sense, not yet adults. They were underage, they were still minors. The church of God, the total company of the saints of God, does not come of age, does not become an adult church until Christ is revealed. And so, the Reformed and Presbyterian understanding of God's revelation of Himself in the Old Testament is that it contains signs and symbols and ceremonies that are designed to be understood by the young mind, by the immature mind, and God's revelation to His people over time becomes more complex, and more searching, and more sophisticated. It becomes less physical and it becomes more spiritual. This, by the way, is why we teach our children the stories from the Old Testament. Young children understand stories like Adam and Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Noah's Ark makes sense to them. The crossing of the Red Sea and the shepherd boy David killing Goliath. Every child loves and understands these stories. They are not abstract. They are not theological. They don't require a Ph.D. to grasp. They are very concrete, very basic, and very memorable. And they teach huge, important truths about who God is and how God works. Children can learn these things. And adults, we can keep going back to them year after year, discovering new spiritual depths and riches. I have become convinced that the first two chapters of Genesis with its account of creation deserve to be read by Christians again and again maybe once a year maybe we should do that on the solstice while the pagans are worshiping the Sun maybe we should read the account the true account of creation I think everything wrong with our world today has its roots in our culture turning its back on the creation story that we find in Genesis. We think differently about our world when we believe that it was made by an eternal, transcendent God who's not part of the world. We think differently about our neighbor when we believe that our neighbor was made in the image of God. We think differently about our bodies when we believe that an all-knowing and an all-good God created us, either male or female, just the way we are. We think differently about our purpose in life when we believe that we were put into this world to do work that God created for us to do. We think differently about ourselves when we realize that God designed us to be able to walk with Him in the evening. A person illuminated by the light of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 lives and thinks differently from secular atheists and neo-pagans with their silly infantile mythology that the earth is our mother with their mind-bending, anti-scientific mythology that gender is not given by God but is self-created in an infinite rainbow spectrum. The Old Testament has a lot to teach. And so-called red-letter Christians who cut themselves off from the deep taproot of our faith are vulnerable to all kinds of bizarre myths that are generated by the surrounding pagan culture. There are two dangers that the church faces. One is the unbelief of atheism. The fool said in his heart there is no God. But the other is syncretism. The blending of Christianity with other alien ideologies. Israel got into trouble when it wanted Yahweh plus some other gods. But Yahweh said he's a jealous God and he does not share his temple with Baal or Asherah. In our day, we need to be clear, it is not possible to embrace the cross of Christ and the rainbow flag of pride. The cross and this flag are symbols of different religions. And if you think you can blend the two of them, you will lose your Christianity. Okay, enough of my anti-Marcionite lecture. Let's turn to Numbers 19 and talk about it and see how it points to Christ. Part of the ceremonial law provides a solution to the problem of sin, both intentional sin and unintentional sins. God has created certain laws, and when those laws are broken, whether we know it or not, the violation of the law has to be dealt with or atoned for, and there are a variety of sacrifices that God provides that do that job. Another part of the ceremonial law deals with the problem of uncleanness. This is a strange idea to us, but it's important for us to understand that when something is declared unclean, that doesn't mean that it's dirty, and just need some soap and water. Cleanness and uncleanness in the Old Testament are not about germs or hygiene. This concept has something to do with death and the proximity of death. In the same way that God is holy and nothing unholy or nothing sinful can be in his presence, God also is pure life and nothing dead or nothing smelling of death can be in his presence. One way that someone would become ceremonially unclean was to touch a dead body. And so the law provides a procedure for the uncleanness to be dealt with. Until the person is clean, he cannot go into the temple. He cannot offer his worship to God. And so uncleanness, this stink of death, is a barrier between us and God. If we touch a dead body, we are unclean. If someone dies in our tent, everyone in the tent is unclean. And remember, these tents that the Israelites were living in, these were not pump, pup tents, these were family-sized tents. A lot of people would be under one very large piece of canvas. If you touched the bone of a dead person, you were unclean. If you touch a grave, you were unclean. And while you were unclean, you were not permitted to go into the tabernacle because if you went into the tabernacle you would make the tabernacle unclean. And so the law provides a very simple system for removing this uncleanness. The ashes of the red cow are part of this system and we're going to talk about that in one minute. But I first want you to see that this uncleanness business is so serious that if a person refuses to go through the ritual that purifies him, if they say, oh, that's not important, or no, oh, no one will know, what difference does it make? Those people must be removed from the community. They must be excommunicated. They must be driven into exile. They cease to be part of the people of God they are cut off from the blessings of Abraham. Why? Well, so that their uncleanness doesn't pollute anyone else. The ritual which cleans the person is actually very simple and it doesn't cost anything. It's over in just a week. But if the person refuses to use this ritual, then they are no longer part of the community and that is their free choice. There are times in the life of the church, in the life of the community of faith, when it must cut off certain individuals who refuse to abide by the rules of that community. And this is not because the community is mean or judgmental, It's because the community has boundaries and is healthy enough to preserve its own integrity. The lack of boundaries is always a sign of disorder in an organism. The Law of Moses is actually very uh, very gracious in dealing with the mistakes that people make. There is always a way to be restored to purity and to wholeness and to fellowship. But if the person refuses to make use of those means of grace that are provided, then the community has no choice but to honor the decision of that person and to remove them from the community. All of you remember the dark days of COVID. Some places during the time of COVID, some places like hospitals, would not let you enter if you did not present your COVID vaccination card. That's not because the hospital is judgmental. That's just a sign of healthy boundaries, and the church is no different. So let's talk about the red cow recipe. You take a perfect cow. You take a cow that doesn't have any bruises or blemishes. You take a cow that has never been yoked or done any work. has to be a red cow because red is the color of blood. And you take that cow and you burn it whole. You don't drain the blood out of it first, you burn the blood too, you burn burn its guts, and you burn it to ashes. And into that fire that's burning the cow, you add a cedar stick, which is red like the cow, red like blood and you add some scarlet string which is red like the cow and red like blood and you add hyssop which is the plant that's used to sprinkle the blood at Passover time everything about the sacrifice and the fire used to burn the sacrifice they all point to blood to red blood and for Jews life is in the blood That was the reason they were not permitted to drink blood, because to drink blood was to take something sacred, something that belonged only to God. And once the cow and the hyssop and the cedar and the scarlet string were reduced to ashes, all of those ashes would then be collected and placed into a jar. And they would stay in that jar until they were needed. When the need arose... When someone was made unclean by coming into contact with a dead body, some of the ashes would be mixed with water and then sprinkled with hyssop over the person. That's what, here's what we read in verses 17 through 18. If you have become unclean, someone must use the ashes from the burned cow to make you clean again. They must pour fresh water over the ashes into a jar. That clean person must take a hyssop branch and dip it into the water. The clean person must sprinkle it over the tent, the dishes, and any person who were in the tent, that clean person must do this for anyone who touches a dead body, its bones, or even a grave. Now, I want to say a couple of things about the red cow ashes. First, the ashes of the red cow, which are stored until needed, and then mixed with water, are kind of like a freeze-dried blood sacrifice, just waiting to be used. Some people who don't drink coffee themselves keep a jar a freeze-dried Nescafe in their cupboard just in case a guest like me might show up and want a cup of coffee. The stuff, the freeze-dried coffee, you know, it's got a shelf life of like a million years. But it's handy to have around just in case you need it. That's what the ashes of the red cow were like. They were prepared, stored in a jar, ready to use whenever somebody needed them. And there is nothing else quite like this in all of the Old Testament. Second, the sacrifice of the red cow, and it was a sacrifice, blood was shed, happens before (coughs) there was a need for it. Think about that for a second. The sacrifice happens before the thing that the sacrifice is atoning for. In the normal sequence of things, We sin, or we become unclean, and then we go looking for a solution to the problem that we've created. But in the case of the red cow, the sacrifice happens before anyone who's become unclean, before there is a need. That's very interesting. God's grace is prepared even before the sin has happened, even before the uncleanness has happened. Think about that. So let me talk about Jesus for a minute. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptizer says when he sees Jesus. Jesus is many things to us. He has many titles. He is the Word of God that was spoken at creation. The Bible tells us that all things... Uh, We're made through Jesus. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the great physician who heals all of our diseases. He is the king of kings. He is the revelation of the fullness of God. He is our merciful high priest who is pleading our case before the Father for us. But Jesus also is the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that pays for our sins. In the Old Testament law, we learn about sin and sacrifice. Sin is a violation of God's law. And sacrifice is the system that God created to cover over or to set aright, or to pay for our violations. The sacrificial system is a great mercy to us because we don't have to be crushed by our sin or by our guilt. God does not want to kill us. He wants us to be well, and to be whole, and to be alive, and to be with him forever. And so he develops this system to make it possible. When Jesus died on the cross, his self-sacrifice was the final sacrifice. It was the end of the ceremonial law. After Calvary, we no longer offer God blood to atone for our sins, the blood of Christ, has already been shed. And for us Christ's sacrifice was offered before we need it. Much like the ashes of the red cow. When we needed Christ, he was already waiting for us. And the sacrifice that he made so long ago it sprinkles us clean today and if you sin tomorrow it'll sprinkle you clean tomorrow and it'll sprinkle you clean every day that you need it cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow at Calvary Christ took the payment for the sins of the whole church one sacrifice for every single person who will ever be saved Christ's death Conquers our sin, but Christ's death also conquers death itself. First Corinthians 15:26 says, "The last enemy to be destroyed is death." Jesus has conquered every enemy including death itself, which pollutes the world and makes us unclean. The blood of Christ atones for our sin, but the blood of Christ also makes us clean again. It removes the stench of death from us, so that in the eyes of God, we are both sinless and deathless. I know this is mysterious, which is why the Old Testament gives us more concrete version of things in the ashes of a red cow the third point that I just remembered while I was praying. If you read again the prescription that's offered in Numbers chapter 15 for making the person clean, everybody who's involved in the process of making the -person, the, the person who's unclean clean again, in that process themselves becomes unclean. Do you understand that? The one who's purifying you becomes impure himself. One of the mysteries of the cross of Christ is that Christ had to become sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. Christ became filthy to remove our filth. As we come to the Lord's table today we come in faith and we come in trust. We trust that Jesus is who he said he is. We trust that his death was not accidental or that it was not wasted. We trust that it accomplishes more than we can even ask or imagine. We trust that the blood of Christ covers our sins and removes from us the stench of death that is part of our fallen human nature. We trust that by faith in Christ, we have moved from death to life. We trust that in Jesus, we have discovered the narrow way that leads to life. Only a few will find it. So let me ask the final question. Why is it that Jesus is called the Lamb of God? Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? Normally, if I sin and have to bring a sacrifice to God, I would select that animal from my own herd, or I would purchase that animal from a dealer at the temple, and I would present my lamb to the Lord, as a sacrifice for my sins. Christ's sacrifice, the sacrifice that takes away your sin, is not yours. It's not the sacrifice that you made. It's the sacrifice that God made. That's why Jesus is not the Lamb of you. He's the Lamb of God God pay, himself pays the price for our sin. If I bring a sacrifice to take away my sin, that would be the Lamb of Dan. But I'm not saved by the Lamb of Dan. I'm not saved by my own labors. I'm saved by the Lamb of God. And in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the self-giving sacrifice, we have the perfect atonement and we have eternal life. They were purchased for us at the cost of the blood of the Son of God. They were purchased for us by God himself who paid the price because he loves us. Because his mercy is huge. What can wash away my sin? What can remove the stench of death that clings to me as a fallen person? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the good news. So let us continue to celebrate. Amen. (coughs)